Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. that heals is an expression of the tools that Robert Strzok has developed over a lifetime of inspired self-exploration. During an almost five-decade practice as a teacher, psychotherapist, and humanitarian, he has developed a unique approach to communication, contemplation, and inquiry. Join me for this episode as we discuss awareness that heals, bringing heart and wisdom to life's challenges. This is The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. I'm going to start by welcoming Robert Strzok to the show, and we're going to be discussing his amazing book, Awareness That Heals, Bringing Heart and Wisdom to Life's Challenges. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time and being here with us on The Spark. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm looking forward to our conversation very much. I have to tell you, one of the things right out of the shoot that I loved about this book is that you were willing to be transparent. And, and I, we're going to be talking all about this wonderful awareness that heals. But one of the amazing things that you shared was going through your own journey with your kidney transplant yes. and, and kind of how that brought you to this inner awareness. Can you share that? Sure, sure. And, you know, the... the Kidney transplant itself was actually relatively routine, but the medications that you have to take to compromise your immune system so it doesn't attack the kidney is uh, a lot more challenging, or at least for me it was. And I had a rather unusual effect where for the first seven months I slept for an hour a night. And so whereas from 18 to 50, I had a pretty fortunate life where I was counseling and was loving my life and grateful and suddenly I'm sleeping an hour a night and I I would wake up after my one hour and I would feel a mixture of complete exhaustion and speed mixed together. And so I no longer could feel even grateful toward my brother who gave me the kidney. I couldn't feel I couldn't feel love, I couldn't feel joy, I couldn't feel inspiration. But what I could do was I could set my intention pretty clearly as to what mattered for me because I had a past that I still remember very well. And I also could gradually learn how to have my mind be an ally because I didn't have access to my heart. And that was pretty well six years. The sleeping improved after six months to being three or four hours a night. And so I was agitated, I was anxious, I was empty, I was deficient in almost every way you can possibly imagine. And I was still counseling. And so the people that were more, let's say, I had a closer relationship with, they all knew about the transplant. And so I was able to share, please don't be concerned about me. I'm wiped out in one level, but I'm still fully here in my awareness and I still care about you. And I have even more motivation to make you the center of attention than even normal. You're a relief to be with. Yes. So that, that you could actually be out of your own mind and, you know, into someone else's mind and heart. I imagine that was such a great relief at that time. I can't imagine, Robert, this going on for six years. Yeah, no, it, it, it was actually the experience was like 
uh, borrowing somebody's heart and body. I was, it was really on the edges of almost a little bit mystical that I could feel good when I could be with another person who is utterly transparent or mostly transparent. And the moment they left, I'd crash. And then I, you know, perhaps be able to re-arise again. But it was a little bit like being a ventriloquist, you know, where I was doing my best to have my facial expressions not grab attention and take away from what was happening. So I had to sort of lift my exhausted internal world to look somewhat normal. And, it, you know, the whole thing was a, a great challenge, not only for six years. It was, it's was it been a gradual journey. And in the last two years, two and a half years, 20 years later, I found a combination of medications to counteract medications. Because meditation helped in terms of not adding on to the challenging feelings. So my mind was not against me. And I was able to pretty well let it know that it really wasn't going to help very much if I got critical because I knew I couldn't do anything better than what I was doing. And so that guidance of intention and focusing on the other and having the mind be friendly with things like, you know, you're doing the hardest work of your life. You know, even though you feel the worst, you're working way, way harder. And, And of course that's true for anybody that's, facing any kind of challenging circumstance that in a sense you deserve the most credit when you feel the worst, if you're able to bring yourself to some kind of a intention that's carrying toward yourself or another. You know, when, when you're cruising and you're feeling love and you're feeling grateful or you're feeling easy or relaxed, it's not that hard to be loving. You know? Yeah, that's easy. <laughs> yeah, that's easy. That's, that was the easy time. And so in a certain way, it was really a, like something I never in my wildest dreams could imagine losing my heart, yeah. losing my life. Yeah. I could imagine losing my life. I could imagine getting sick, but my physical health has been tremendous, but basically the, the emotional states were very, very challenging. Absolutely. We define ourselves so much by those emotional states. I'm just sitting here imagining that struggle of how do I define myself now? Who am I? And who is this person that's taken over my body? It's a very astute observation because we do generally define ourselves by, well, this is how I feel. This is, this is sort of who I am. And that became one of the most crucial things was I couldn't afford to define myself by how I felt or I was probably worse off than, I mean, definitely worse off than any of the clients I was seeing. But If I define myself as my response to how I felt by my intention that I wanted to carry with how I felt, uh, that felt like a pretty good way to, even in ordinary life, a pretty good way to define yourself in a more accurate way. You know, if if you're in a light state or you're fortunate in life, or for that matter, not fortunate in life, that's a terrible way to define yourself. Imagine being in Syria during, during the war-torn area and you're in a state of fear, terror, chronic anxiety, helplessness, you can't protect your kids, this or that. Well, if you define yourself by that, then you're in a nightmare. And of course, you're still in a nightmare. But if you, re- if you define yourself more by 
how can I have the best chance of taking care of myself and my kids? You know, where, where's the shelter? Where's the food? You know, is, is there a moment where I can have any way of escaping or anywhere to go? So re- the response is really an important keyword to me. Reminded me of Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning. He was, as you know, a prisoner in Auschwitz. And when we can't change those external conditions, what we can do to change our internal conditions. One of my two greatest heroes in college, yeah, which is, I don't know, 45 years ago, Victor Frankl and Buckminster Fuller were my two heroes. And how do you not value someone who has gone through what he did in a concentration camp and be able to still respond and inspire other people to respond. Utterly moving. And he came in to, to mind a lot during that period because he really was dealing with something that was much more severe than I was. So it, it, was, a, it was like, relatively speaking, I was having it easy. All, all I had to worry about was my heart was gone. <laughs> and, and at that same time, I find myself saying that with my clients too. We can't compare, right? I mean, we can't compare because there's always going to be someone that's had something worse than us or someone that's had it easier than us. And our situation at the time, that's what's imperative to us. That's our challenge. That's our cross to bear, if you will, and our challenge to work through. Yeah. And and I think that would be the good news if we were aware of our challenges. You know, one of the things that is pretty evident in my work and, and really just observing in life is that of course everybody has challenges, but not everybody is aware of them. And then oftentimes if they are aware of them, it's a negative awareness. It's like, oh, I can't stand feeling like this. What is the most important tool that we can utilize when we are feeling the challenges of life? My conversation with Robert Strzok continues as he shares the answer to that question and gives us even more tools to overcome some of life's most difficult circumstances. Versus recognizing if you can just be aware with a sensitive awareness to say, this is what's happening. Now, how do I take care of myself? So a big part of the emphasis in the book and my life, friendships, is being aware of what really is the most challenging emotion that you're going through at any given point in time. And then how can you be resourceful? How can you be caring? How can you really do your best to nurture yourself, to be courageous or whatever the particular qualities that are most needed at that given point in time? Will you talk about that? Because one of the things that I loved, I loved the expression of the friendly mind. And that is something I had never heard before until your book and the importance of cultivating this friendly mind in helping us to heal. Can you speak about that? Sure. You know, semantically, I would ask just that everyone just agree with the semantics because there's a lot of ways of understanding how friendly mind could be used. But the way I'm using it is when you are emotionally incapable of changing your state, So it's not just being friendly when you're already feeling pretty good. It's really being defined as when you feel so much terror 
but you're not going to get over the terror for some period of time where you feel so angry or you feel so wounded or so rejected or so insecure or whatever it is. Then what can you do if you can't change your feelings? Well, what you can do is you can make it worse by criticizing yourself for it. Or you can recognize, let's see, how can I best take care of myself? Well, I still have my mind. How can my mind be of support to me and guide me? So it's not just saying nice things to yourself. It's also making suggestions of how you need to respond in your life. So it's not just putting frosting on garbage. You're talking about really asking yourself, okay, I'm really angry. Am I better off to express it right now with a person that I'm angry at, or am I better off to wait until I can find out what I really need and find a, a more constructive way to express it? And it's also not uh, just just a abstraction. It's, it's, it's really being used to help anyone, which is all of us, who have moments in time where we're immersed in emotion in a hopeless, let's say temporary state, hopefully. And then you're looking for guidance, but you're also looking to be having your own back and not at the expense of anyone else either. So part of the constructs of friendly mind is you need to be accountable. You have to earn it. You know, you, you don't just say, gee, you're a good guy while you dump your load on somebody else. It's a combination of friendliness and guidance that really is there when you feel the very worst you can imagine. And the art of coexisting at one level, speaking a little bit loosely, you're screwed in some kind of a way. And at another level, you recognize, no, no, I'm not completely that way. I still have a mind if I can harness it. And I still have the ability to ask myself, how can I best take care of myself, even if it's just with a bit of wisdom? You know, and, and a lot of people diminish that to just being in your head. So friendly mind is not something that is just being in your head. It really is an element of wisdom. In fact, just as I was saying earlier, you deserve even more credit if you can access friendly mind when you're feeling lousy than, in, than you do if you find wisdom when you're feeling great. It's a much greater challenge. So if you start to really let that in deeply, then you can afford to face whatever you're feeling because you know you have a way to respond that's going to be supportive, even though you might not feel supportive because you might not be able to feel. But you can intuitively know that you're guiding yourself to move in a supportive direction. One of the things that you just touched on was a new idea for me, too, is really looking at we're, we live in this culture of positive affirmations. And it's like the comparison walking into a garden full of weeds and just saying to the weeds, there's no weeds, there's no weeds, there's no weeds. <laughs> yeah, what, one of the things I really go out of my way to contrast is that it is not affirmation because yeah, affirmations is really more like a wish or a prayer. And it doesn't really, doesn't really require you to guide yourself. So this is really taking quite a bit more responsibility than an affirmation. It's saying there's weeds, there's weeds, there's weeds. I wonder if I need to take the weeds out. I wonder what the best way to take the weeds out. 
I wonder what I want to plant. I wonder how I can plant them. I wonder if I need any help planting them. Is there anybody I know that's uh, a good landscape person that could help me plant them? I love that metaphor. I think that's great. And even further, do I need to fertilize it? What do I need to use to fertilize it with? Exactly. How, how do I help this, these new things to take root and to grow? Yes, yes. And, and the affirmations has always seemed like sort of a, a minor support. When you're really, really bad off, it can kind of distract you away from the suffering. But it also runs the risk of suppression and, and having your mind be completely separated from your emotional experience. And then you can stay separated long enough that you forget about it altogether and now you no longer can feel yourself. Whereas I have such uh, really reverence for whatever state you are in. It's like the, the attitude of how is it now and not having those very harsh standards that most of us are raised with that, well, I want to be sexier, I want to be more popular, I want to be richer, I want to be taller. Instead, it's really looking at what is realistic in the present and the near future. So there's a lot of emphasis in friendly mind in the present and in the near future. You know, the present has been overused a lot, but I, I like the near future too. I like, you know, I like the next hour, the next day, and not getting too far out in the future where you can't really have any chance of impacting it. So let's talk about this awareness that heals. The title of the book, what is your definition of that? The definition of awareness that heals is you start off and there's eight chapters and every chapter starts off with what in the back you see is a list of 75 challenging emotions. And so you look at what you're experiencing that's challenging in your life and very important next words, at the same time, look for the qualities, which again in the back of the book, there's 75 essential qualities or qualities of heart and I'm not proposing that my list is the right list. I'm just saying it's, it's a good list of, of 75 of each. So the simultaneous experience of wherever you are that's not feeling good and looking for the qualities that would help you with that, nurture you, move you in a direction that's going to be a benefit to you and again, not at the expense of anybody else. And that simultaneity is something that has been kind of a, a deep suffering in my life because in the psychology world, there's a lot of sensitivity to feeling. And, and in the spiritual world, there's a lot of sensitivity to compassion. But so often, the, both worlds are missing the other half. And so it's really having equal reverence. I would say I'm a 50-50 guy. I have as much respect for being aware of what your guts are experiencing as I do for a compassionate response at that same time. And of course, at that same time, and maybe five minutes later or 10 minutes later or the next day, whenever you're aware. But it, it sounds simple to understand intellectually. But if you imagine yourself in your very worst, most challenging 
a motion or two or three. And then you say, how often am I really resourcing the qualities and the thoughts and the actions that are most needed to support me while I'm in this very specific state? So the general structure, the book starts out with, in the first chapter, it, it starts off with, imagine yourself in your most challenging feeling, and then look to see if you can find a place while you're in that feeling that wants to care for yourself. Not even that does care for yourself, but you have the urge to care for yourself. Now, if you can find that at the same time, then that gives you a chance of looking for the qualities and the actions and the thoughts that can help guide you. And then the next seven chapters are really seven different ways of being challenged if you are applying it to yourself. And then seven different ways of using strategies that will make the feeling of the qualities more accessible. So it may be through asking yourself healthy questions. It, it may be through listening to a part of your mind that has wisdom. It may be understanding what your needs are. It may be understanding what tone of voice you need. It may be recognizing that when you're most judgmental, that you need to move toward self-compassion. Maybe that when you're angry, that you need to discover instead of what you're angry at, what is it that you need and needed in the first place that you didn't get or got too much of that made you angry? And can you bring yourself back to that need and go for what you want rather than go against what you don't want? So, you know, if, if you're angry at, at a part of the country, let's say, and you're angrily protesting, uh, the alternative is passionately and positively protesting for what you do want rather than just striking out against what you don't want. What makes sense to me in that, too, is these negative emotions that so often we want to reject those parts of ourselves. I should be feeling this way and I should be always on top of things. And if we always should on ourselves, we need to quit shooting on ourselves because that is what we do. And it's this punishing critical mind. You know, looking at my own self, what struck me, Robert, so strongly through the book is how I do this self-rejection that I don't even realize that I do. Yeah. And that's such a uh, subtle layer of suffering that most people are not aware of. And, and then there's even another level, which is it's not that big a deal if you judge yourself, if you can catch it and say, oh, here I am judging myself. That, that's probably going to do a lot of good. And you be playful, maybe find a little bit of humor. Let's see if I smack myself a little bit harder. Maybe I'll straighten up. How's that worked out so far in my life? So the, the other thing is really looking at self-rejection is not only the critical mind, but it's also, let's say you're in a state of fear or you're in a state of anger or helplessness or rejection and security. And you ask yourself the question, do you like yourself when you're in that state? Do you love yourself when you're in that state? Do you feel warm toward yourself when you're in that state? And if the answer is no, it's also a form of self-rejection in the form of self-abandonment. And so just withdrawing from ourselves 
when we're not feeling good, not recognizing we have the capacity to be supportive is a form of self-rejection. And it's very, very subtle. But the way to make it less subtle is to ask yourself the question, when I'm in my most challenging emotion, do I care for myself? Do I even want to care for myself? Do I feel I deserve it? And more often than not, you know, in working, for example, with people that are sick, well, say, do you care for yourself when you feel weak? Well, of course not. What a, what a stupid kind of question is that? What do you, what do you, why are you asking me that? And it takes a little while to say, no, you can be weak. As a matter of fact, you can't not be weak. And you still have a capacity to have an and. And while you're weak, there's a possibility that you can say to yourself something like, this would be hard for anyone. I, I'm, I'm sorry you have to go through this. Do you want to take a nap? I'm still here with you. And no, that's not a schizophrenic talking to itself. That, that's a recognition that we have the capacity to not only be aware, but also to find a part of our mind or our heart, depending upon how bad off we are, and be able to respond with a form of caring no matter what we feel. You know, I'm not a believer in trying to get rid of feelings. I'm a big believer in allowing the feelings to be there and be as compassionately responsive as possible or as wisely responsive as possible. And when the feelings are ready to let go of themselves, they will. But if we interfere, it's almost like giving them a, a vitamin B shot. Yeah, we're amplifying them by yeah. saying, no, 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 no. You, you know, you shouldn't feel that way. So we're exactly. anxious about feeling anxious and we're angry about feeling angry. Exactly. And exactly. so, yes, my experience and what I find in my office too is as we enter those emotions and embrace those emotions, and as you're saying, have compassion for them, yeah. we actually move through them more fully and quickly. Yes, yes. And sometimes quickly, sometimes. I, I, I love the arrow. I, I love thinking of all of this as an arrow of moving in a direction rather than elimination. You know, it's like we're moving toward a kindness. We're moving toward an acceptance. We're moving toward a tolerance even. And instead of, oh, I no longer feel that way anymore. It's gone. And, and just having that, again, that standard is like a prison because we so often want to eliminate things that are impossible to eliminate. I have a few close friends now being 71, as happens for everybody, who have illnesses. One had three spinal surgeries and couldn't walk. And so more than anything in the world, what he wanted to do was, I want to walk, I want to walk, I want to walk, I want to walk. And so the conversation went into, well, while you're not able to walk, do you want to be kind toward yourself? Do you want to get a good wheelchair? Do you want to get a cool looking scooter? Do you want to give yourself a massage? Do you want to get a massage? Do you want to read something? Do you really want to focus on the impossible? You know, a, a big, a big part of the inquiry needs to be, is what I'm wanting or what I'm judging myself for really possible in the present or the near future? And so, the person that has a stroke, who I have a very close friend, 
she wants to be able to talk better because she had aphasia. You know, per, a person that's on dialysis and has very low energy, he wants to have more energy. And so the inquiry becomes over and over again. Okay, can you tolerate, can you begin to tolerate the state that you're in and then ask yourself how you can be realistically making your own best efforts to make the best of your situation. And to me, that's, that's my religion. You know, I mean, that I have a lot of faith in if we're really responsive toward the real ground in which we're in. I truly appreciate the part that you said about it's not about reaching some kind of finish line. It's like we're not going to just experience this emotion and whew, I'm over that and not ever going to have to feel that anger or that pain again. And that, that we can move in this direction where we are growing in kindness and compassion. We're growing in this really deepening of self-care. And it's not about elimination at all. It's actually yeah. that we then continue to maybe befriend in an even more gentle way when these emotions arise for us. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's so important, I think, to be able to see that our standards, our goals are so often not reachable. You know, I want to be prettier than I am. I want to be handsome. I, I want to be more successful in love relationships. I, I don't want to have this sexual issue or whatever it is. And you've, let's say, worked on yourself to do everything you know how to do. You've gone to all the experts and, and then you hopefully will say to yourself, until I can see another way of moving, I'm going to do everything I can to accept, to be kind and, and to focus on what is possible. When we return, Robert talks about some of his own difficulties and how he dealt with some of the emptiness and helplessness and how we can deal with difficult conditions in our lives and how we can increase our well-being. Hey everybody, this is Adrian from Feminist Hot Dog, and I want you to join me and my awesome guests as we put the fun in feminism. It's true. On Feminist Hot Dog, we explore all the ways feminism makes the world a better place, no matter who you are. So come hang out on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Mountain on NoCo FM, and don't forget, love yourself and love your buns. See you on Wednesday. Your support means the world to us. Hi. It's Dr. Natalie Phillips from Connecting a Better World. Everything we do here at NOCO FM is member-supported. From the music we play to our original podcasts and live shows, all of that costs money to produce, and we can't do it without you. Become a member today and invest in the programming you enjoy so we can create more together. Learn more at noco.fm. Can, do you have examples of people that you've worked with or even other examples from your own life that you would share with us so people can understand a little bit more about how this process works? Sure, sure. Going back to just say my own states of, I can almost use any 
challenging emotion because I think I was in all of them. But let's just start with exhaustion and emptiness and helplessness. And while that's there, the first voice that would come after I realized that this was the only thing I could do was, well, of course you are. You've only slept an hour or three hours or four hours. And are you doing this on purpose? Are you exhausting yourself on purpose? Is this intentional? And the absurdity of that lightens things up a little bit. You know, I'm still exhausted, but it makes it easier. And then there's the question, which there's a whole chapter on inquiry of asking yourself questions that are designed to be the kind of questions that are going to serve your well-being. So instead of saying what's wrong with you, which isn't a common experience while I'm feeling any of those emotions I mentioned, I'm asking, well, of course you feel that way. And what's the way to navigate? And being comfortable with not knowing, you know, one of the other features is an awful lot of the times what we're going to come up with, I'm not sure how I move in a direction that's going to be better for me. And the response to that is, congratulations, rather than, oh, I hate not knowing, or, you know, I feel like such a fool. And you say, congratulations, not knowing doesn't have a period, like it's the end of the question. It means it's a very important, inspiring question to stay with. So one of the key features of when you're in a challenging emotion, and when I'm in a challenging emotion, or a client is in a challenging emotion, or a friend is, is asking the question, and when the so-called answer comes up, I'm not sure how to do that. I really will frequently say, is that sincere? And they'll say, well, of course it is. Are you recognizing it's sincere? Well, not partially. And is that something that you think you can stay with? Maybe for half an hour, maybe for, maybe for an hour, put, lie down, put your hand on your heart, put on a little music and say, you know, I'm not sure how to best take care of myself when I feel this exhausted. Do I want to take a nap? Do I have enough energy where I can take a walk? Do I want to talk to a friend? So to a large extent, the theme is pretty consistent. It's always, what are you experiencing? And when you're asking what are you experiencing, it's very, very important whether you're a therapist or whether you're not a therapist or whether you're anybody that you look at the tone of the one that's asking. So when you say, how are you doing? That can be a form of lovemaking, or it can be a form of hate making, or it can be a form of desert making. It can be a whole rainbow of everything from a healing influence to a slaughterhouse. And so how are you doing is kind of like breathing rhythmically. It has a tone or it can have a tone of, I do care about myself. The question is because I do want myself to feel better. And then being resourceful, the reason why I made the two lists is because my experience is people, they know how to say I feel good or I feel bad. They may not always be upfront with themselves even, let alone others. But the specificity is very, very important because if you're feeling jealous and you think you're feeling angry, that's a problem. 
if you feel angry and you think you're expressing sadness, that's probably the source of half the fights in the world where you are mislabeling your emotions and you aren't able to see that actually, you know what? You just started a fight. You thought you were saying you were sad. You were looking for empathy, but you said, you know, this really hurts me. And you don't realize you just stuck a dagger into somebody and now you're looking for empathy. Well, guess what? You're going to get a smack very likely unless the person is pretty developed to say, could you ask a little bit nicer than, you know, or could you express that a little softer? I, that hurt because I, I felt a bit attacked. Could you, could you be a little warmer or a little bit more dropped into your sadness, perhaps? So the examples are daily and often hourly. There's almost, almost not a conversation that goes on. My friendships largely are based on I'm completely interested in what's hurting the most and where you're most inspired or most fulfilled most turned on, where you're most turned off, where you're most turned on and do my best to not be heavily rooting for you to be turned on all the time. You know, that the paradox of being able to be with somebody who's hurting in some way, who's scared in some way, who's angry and being able to say, thank you for letting me know where you are. It's like the real honoring of our inner experience and being able to articulate it is so underrated. And it's understandable why it's underrated if you don't have any ways that you know how to respond to it. So if, if somebody says, well, how are you feeling? I'm feeling sad. And that's the end. Then you feel like you're in an endless sadness. But if you know, and after a while you do start to know, if you see the lists and you see oh, there are a lot of qualities that I could move my mind toward or maybe I know somebody that's able to be in this quality better than I am or more frequently than I am. Maybe I'll give them a call. But this attempt to support an attitude, again, moving in a direction, not trying to be perfect at it, but moving in a direction where you're trying to just be neutral, of course, at some level, we're all gonna always prefer to feel good than feel bad. So that's a given. But attempting to make that as low key as possible is one of my deeper aspirations, both internally and externally with everyone I know. Because that's truly the experience of being human and really diving into our true authenticity. Yes. As and, human beings, yes. And, and intimate. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, to me, the, the deepest intimacy isn't love beating love. It can be one of the forms of deepest intimacy. You know, when you have a chemistry and your love's meeting love or you're looking at each other's eyes and you're enjoying that, that can be intimate. But to be able to have the trust, to be able to share that I'm scared or I'm feeling insecure or I'm feeling competitive, especially I'm feeling competitive because that's so embarrassing. I'm competing with you. That's a conversation that is probably one out of a thousand that somebody would share that. I remember when I was young, I was a, I, I am a golfer, was a golfer. My brother was a golfer. And I remember growing up, he was two years older than me, the one that gave me the kidney transplant. And inwardly, I was always rooting against him. I always wanted to be a little bit better, you know? And it was so embarrassing and, and shaming 
that at some egoic level, I was rooting against him. And then I realized in later years that having the advantage of having somebody inside the four walls and they're revealing their life, that virtually everybody has a competitive side, and especially in the area that they most care about. And it's, again, that's not really a problem. The problem is hiding it and then it just festering or even more leading to low self-esteem, leading to excessive jealousy, insecurity, inadequacy, which it will. If you really bury it, you go out to a party or an event and you look around, you see all these people that are more something than you and you start feeling bad. And then you start feeling bad that you feel bad because you're comparing yourself and you start feeling bad because, oh my God, this person's smarter than I am or, or this person's more knowledgeable about this subject or whatever. And the key is, oh, awareness. I can see it and I can pause for a while. So how, while I feel competitive, how can I best take care of myself? Well, first, admit, you know what, it's a pretty universal part of having an ego that a part of us is competitive. Now the question is, are we going to amplify it and fan the flames? Or are we going to say, you know, this person may very well be better than me in this area. And that's okay. It's okay. It doesn't feel okay. It kind of still feels bad. But it's okay that it kind of feels bad. And can I respond in a way to still connect and not let it uproot me so much that it destroys the interaction or the evening or the week. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and somehow holding on to that person can be as intelligent or beautiful, as accomplished as possible. And that doesn't diminish me. Exactly. Unless I let it. Unless I let it. Exactly. And I love this reality of intimacy Because it really is this awareness that heals is developing that intimacy with ourselves. Yes. Just as we would show up for our very best friend and be able to hold that compassionate, loving space where we allow people, as you were talking about with your best friends, where you're really raw and real and you can show up and show the sides of yourself that you think maybe are kind of ugly or embarrassed about. And to be able then to turn that same compassionate heart towards yourself and to hold yourself in that same level of intimacy and care. Yeah. What a gift, what a gift to cultivate that. Yeah. It really is a moving in a direction towards self-compassion and it's surprising how the difficult feelings that we experience, how we normally have our awareness go fleeting in and out. You know, we, we don't stabilize it very often for most of us. And we also even rarer stabilize the awareness and find a place that wants to care for ourselves. We don't even look for that. It just has like a monotone quality to it more often than not. And the idea of recognizing that we're almost always potentially at two levels, a level of humanness or suffering and a level of responsiveness and elements of compassion. And granted, many times, a lot of people are at one level and aren't even aware of that level. And so therefore, don't have the ability to develop this capacity to be a observer or a witnessing of it, and ultimately a caring observer and witness of it. 
But I think the real key is learning that the ability just to acknowledge any kind of human state is a victory. And it's halfway, and if you only stay halfway, the chances are you're going to lose that ability because it's not that much fun to be aware of it if you have nowhere to go, no resources, no direction, no support. But if you start to trust yourself, that you're invested in your well-being, and you know it's a matter of just asking myself, how can I really care for myself when I'm in this particular state, my most dreaded state? That's gold, and and that is a form of self-intimacy. And of course, if you can do it with yourself, there's a whole lot better chance you can do it with somebody else too, and then with friends and family and others. One of the things I wanted to make sure that I mentioned is that with your book, you give a web address so people can access the mindfulness or meditation practices that can help them deepen this. So if folks are wanting to get more information about the book or to be able to access these meditations to take this to the next level. Well, if you twist my arm, I will. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Awarenessthatheals.org. And yes, there are 24 guided meditations that all start with the feelings that are most challenging to you. And the very beginning meditation starts with Can you find a place that cares? And it's a little easier to go deeper in a guided meditation for most people than it is to read or to listen to a voice. Really focus on yourself and you're in a guided meditation. It gives you the chance to say, okay, so which ones of these are mine? And it's particularly helpful. What I call the two lists, I call them the introspective guides. No matter where you are, to know I can identify what I feel because I don't have every little nuanced feeling listed or every little nuanced quality listed. I think that literacy, expanding that, gives you a lot more confidence to know, gosh, I don't know what I feel. But wait a minute, if I can look at it, I can figure that out. Well, now that I know that I feel this, I don't know how I'm gonna take care of myself. Oh, I can look at this list over here and see which of these qualities might be a direction that I want to move myself and I want to think toward, I want to act toward, you know, and I want to be resourceful toward. The neat thing that you did as well, you said, you know, their quality and needs, like what is a need that I may have right now? And so it helps as you look at that list, like, oh, this is something I could do right now that would really help fulfill that in me and help me move towards that. I'm uh, impressed, honored, and pleased that you would bring out that subtlety of qualities and needs because that was probably the hardest semantical struggle because I wanted to appeal to the general listener. I wanted to appeal to the psychology folks, and I also wanted to appeal to the spiritual people. And in one way, I'm rebellious toward all of them. Rebellious is not quite the right word, but let's say I'm trying to fill in, and maybe at one level, rebellious is the right word. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just a really, really important element to be able to zero in. Transformative work. This book was absolutely phenomenal, and it's really touched my heart. And I have to say, I'm one of those people, as I started reading the book, 
I started using it the next day with my clients, you know, it it really, it it helped open up and even asking people just that question, do you have a sense in you of an awareness that truly cares for your well-being? Just Mm -hmm. that question alone was so powerful. And so I just want to thank you for that. You and I, oftentimes as therapists, people can put us a little bit on the pedestal that, oh, you've got it all figured out and you don't go through these same challenges or struggles. (laughs) And the the beautiful thing that we're all on this journey together and that you and I are going to keep doing this work too. And I'm excited to have these tools as I work through my own challenges and struggles. Well, thank you. I feel very honored by you saying that. I've asked through the years, I've been fortunate to be able to have lunches and dinners with a lot of spiritual teachers. And I asked them, why don't you lead with an example of your human experience that you're most wrestling with and how your spiritual teachings are helping you live or last week? Why is yes. it, why are, why are the examples 20 years ago or 30 years ago? And, and why isn't it clear that we're all a permanent process and none of us are, are going to arrive for therapists as well? I mean, it, it, of course you have to be careful as to how much you reveal and that it's not about you, it's about them. But if you have an example in your life that is going to help them see and accept where they are and be more resourceful, that's the one time where it's, really, really helpful to be able to share some of your own experience. And now now the idea that it's all all neatly packaged now, and now I'm perfectly fine. No, that suffering's still there, but I'm I'm with myself at some level and still working on it. Still have to remind myself daily, hourly. It's such (laughs) an important message. So as as we're wrapping up, Robert, are, are there any words or essential message that you want to make sure that we're capturing here? Well, I think you've done such a really thorough, I only want to say job because it feels more graceful than that. You've been so complete. I think it would be the one you just mentioned, which is when you're in your most difficult emotion, seeing if you can find a place that cares and recognizing that that's the starting point. I mean, that that can be an absolutely inspiring starting point. And then the second thing is that valuing the human side of yourself as much as the compassionate side and that you can't have one without the other. And those two coming together and recognizing that none of us, you know, none of us are going to arrive, but we can certainly move in a direction. So I, I think there's that. And, and then the last little thing, which is a, a little bit of a twist that you won't, probably won't be expecting, is I also am working very much with, with a foundation and with having the external challenges of the world be faced. And then what kind of responses can we have to the external challenges just as much as the internal challenges So it's just as applicable to the political, global warming, the struggles we're facing as a country, and that we carry those potentially positive and specific attitudes and difficult feelings we have about them all, and don't get buried in them and feel, oh, I just can't turn the news on, I can't bear it, or I don't want to hear one more story about the world. Instead of withdrawing, it's like, okay, this is very difficult, and I can afford to also apply this to some of the outside world as well. 
It was such a great conversation with Robert Strzok. I have to say one of the things that just touches my heart so much is just his willingness to be so authentic with us and how he was able to just share his own struggles through his kidney transplant, the difficulties that he faced with that, and six years of going through a time where he did not feel connected to his heart because of the medication he was on and having to pull up inside of himself and access this place where he cultivated a friendly mind. That to me is so huge. I realize how we all can do that to define ourselves by our exterior things, the things that we own or our roles that we play and to go back to this essential place. It's like all of the ego, all of the personality, everything stripped away. And how amazing when everything is stripped away that we can find and access that awareness within us that lies within us still that can heal us. It's that part of us that I feel like is always caring for us. It's always there to hold us. And so this becomes a beautiful practice of learning how to access this awareness that heals and how to cultivate the friendly mind so we can move from self-rejection to self-compassion and we can inquire from the heart and develop this beautiful wisdom that guidance that's always available for us. We can notice and start tuning in to the tone of the voice that we use with ourselves, just as we do that and can tune into how we talk with others. We can transform anger and our resistant emotions into intimacy and strength. Robert has given us a roadmap of how we continue on this path and move towards this awareness that brings deep compassion, deep authenticity, and we truly deeply befriend ourselves as we cultivate this beautiful awareness that truly does heal. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. This has been a production of NOCO FM. 